KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Thursday, February 23rd. President Biden is proposing new rules that would limit access to asylum, similar to Trump-era policies. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The strong winds and rainy weather isn't over just yet in San Diego County. The National Weather Service put out a winter storm warning through Saturday. Forecasters say snowfall could reach unprecedented levels in the mountain areas. Because of the weather conditions, schools in the Julian Union Elementary and High School Districts, Mountain Empire Unified School District, and Spencer Valley School District will be closed today. A new lawsuit is accusing the Catholic Diocese of San Diego of committing real estate fraud to avoid paying claims for child sexual abuse. Attorney Erwin Zalkin says the diocese fraudulently transferred assets to 93 individual parish corporations after a 2019 bill extended the time frame for filing abuse claims. This diocese and its parishes have engaged in a conspiratorial enterprise to defraud child abuse victims and to deny them the justice they deserve. The diocese says the parish assets were always separate from the diocese under canon law and that the work to separate them under civil law began long before the 2019 bill. The new suit comes less than two weeks after the diocese announced it might file for bankruptcy because of the abuse claims. Next week, state and local COVID emergency orders will be lifted after being in place for nearly three years. Officials say the orders helped save lives and protect the economy. Emergency orders also allowed hospitals to deal with high patient admissions. Once the orders are lifted, changes include some testing and vaccination sites closing. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Maracal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, Maracal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. President Joe Biden is proposing a new set of rules that would limit access to asylum. Border reporter Gustavo Solis spoke with advocates who say the proposed rules are similar to Trump-era policies that Biden promised to eliminate. It is a resurrection of the Trump administration's policies. It is an asylum ban. That's Blaine Bookie, legal director with the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. She's critical of Biden's proposed policy. It would make virtually anybody who crosses the border illegally ineligible for asylum. It would also apply to people who didn't ask for asylum in a country that they traveled to before reaching the southern border. The policy is very similar to President Donald Trump's so-called asylum transit ban. Bookie says neither of them are very popular. It's pretty much you know, universally rejected by advocates who are standing at the ready to welcome people. White House officials have pushed back on the Trump-era comparisons. The Biden administration has expanded legal pathways into the U.S. Aaron Reichland Melnick is policy director at the American Immigration Council. He says the Trump comparisons are fair game. The reality is, is if the Trump ban applied to 99% of people, this is probably going to apply to 70 to 80% of people. 
The new policy is scheduled to go into effect May 11th. The ACLU has already said it will sue the Biden administration to keep that from happening. Gustavo Solis, KPBS News. When National Guard troops deploy within the U.S., it's typically for short periods of time, like a hurricane or other disaster. But the National Guard has patrolled the southern border for most of the last two decades. Some government watchdogs say that's an inappropriate use of the Guard. From Mission, Texas, Carson Frame reports for the American Homefront Project. Chimney Park RV Resort is a lush oasis of palm trees and natural vegetation. The 55 and older community sits on the bank of the Rio Grande, nestled behind a tall metal border fence. Big motorhomes sit alongside little bungalows and trailers. Wanda Lipto, a so-called winter Texan, has been coming here from Wisconsin with her husband since 2007. She circles the resort in a golf cart and greets her neighbors, who hail from all over. Missouri, here we have um, Canada, Minnesota, Nebraska. You can tell the northern states are represented here. (laughs) Hi, Diane. But Lipto has other neighbors, too. Border Patrol agents launch their patrol boats at Chimney Park. And on most days, two National Guard troops sit facing the river in a pickup truck with a raised camera in its bed. Lipto pulls up her golf cart to say hello. I live here, so I was just curious. We see you coming and going. Thank you for what you do. Keep, Keep up the good work. But you see how they're just a nice young man, probably a long ways from home. Lots of grandmas and grandpas around here. (laughs) The last four presidential administrations have sent National Guard troops to the southwest border. About 2,400 of them are now watching the border and helping the Department of Homeland Security in other ways. Catherine Kuzminski, a researcher with the Center for a New American Security, says the long-running mission raises a big question. If there is that heightened demand, is this the proper role for the National Guard, or does that indicate that there needs to be more resourcing for the Department of Homeland Security? Kuzminski suspects part of the reason that the Guard has been deployed so long is because it's easier politically. Money for the Guard comes out of the defense budget, which is less controversial than border security funding. And so this is a way to quietly fill the capacity need without having to renegotiate budget items or increase a budget and Homeland Security wants the help. The military provides manpower, equipment, and expertise to help Customs and Border Protection agents. Elizabeth Field is with the Government Accountability Office. We found that there was a real need for tasks such as maintaining vehicles, as well as conducting border surveillance. And officials told us that they really have a challenge when it comes to recruiting personnel. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said the military shouldn't be involved at the border long term and that Homeland Security should develop the ability to conduct operations on its own. But the two agencies have struggled to come to an agreement. Field says the long mission is costing the Defense Department, both in money and in readiness. This is not a small amount of money, even for DOD. And we found that the National Guard had in some cases had to cancel training exercises because National Guard troops were on the border performing this function. In addition to the federal troops sent to the border by the last four presidents, Texas Governor Greg Abbott also has deployed his state's National Guard to the region. Victor Trevino is the mayor of Laredo, a major port of entry. He says the troops make some residents feel safer and also deter vigilantes from trying to police the border themselves. 
but he says the guard isn't a permanent solution. Their mere presence and their mere uh, necessity to be here as a support uh, entities just shows us how much we need immigration reform. And as we see, we're just putting a Band-Aid on everything. Lawmakers are trying to better understand the Defense Department's role at the border. A provision in the latest defense budget requires the department to brief Congress quarterly about the mission. This is Carson Frame reporting. The story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Bob Woodruff Foundation. Cal State San Marcos is removing one of its founding fathers' names from campus. North County reporter Tanya Thorne looks into the decision and what's next for the building. The late Senator William Anderson Craven brought North County its own university, Cal State San Marcos. In April 1993, Craven Hall was named for the senator. But just this year, university officials voted to have his name removed from Craven Hall, over comments he made about people who came to the U.S. illegally. It, it seems rather strange that we go out of our way to take care of the rights of these individuals who are perhaps on the lower scale of, uh, of our uh, humanity for one reason or another. The vote came after a task force spent 18 months researching and meeting about the change. The senator's daughter, Trisha Craven Worley, says her father dedicated his life to the university, and his comments were taken out of context. He did it exactly for the people who are populating the university now. Over 50%, as you know, uh, are Hispanic. It's exactly what he had in mind. Now, if that's what he had in mind, why are they removing his name? Senator Craven's name and bust has yet to be removed. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Coming up, the first Indigenous author to win a Pulitzer Prize talks about his journey as an author. We'll have that story and more just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. UCSD researchers say children who are less attracted to a parent's baby talk are more likely to have some form of autism. SciTech reporter Thomas Fudge tells us about a study that used an eye-tracking test on toddlers. A little boy sits on his mother's lap watching a screen with two videos. Which one is he looking at? A video of car traffic or one showing a woman speaking in baby talk? You know, that like sing-songy like, oh, sweetie, I love you, you're so adorable. Karen Pierce is a neuroscientist and the co-director of UCSD's Autism Center for Excellence. She says eye tracking can identify autism spectrum disorder quickly and accurately by seeing whether the image a kid prefers is social or non-social. 
And when we show the video to kids on the spectrum, they might spend more time looking at the traffic. Pierce is a co-author of a paper in the journal JAMA Network this month. He found that if a toddler fixated on the baby talk video at or below 30% of the time while being eye-tracked, it had a 94% chance of being accurately identified with autism. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. A new Pride Center is now open on the campus of Mesa College. Education reporter M.G. Perez has more on what it means for the community. The new Pride Center at Mesa College makes way for the business of creating a safe space for those who are very much out of the closet and those who are not. The center is ready to offer LGBTQ students academic, personal, and career counseling, an affirming library of literature and authors, meeting places, and other gender and sexuality resources. Aureli Sandoval is a first-year student at Mesa College. You come in here and you can be your true self. Whether you're an ally, whether you're a part of the community, you deserve to be here. There is already a Pride Center at City College downtown, with hopes for similar centers at the other two main community college district campuses in the future. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. Native American author N. Scott Mamaday has celebrated the traditions of his Kiowa ancestry in his prose, poetry, essays, and playwriting for more than six decades. His 1968 novel, House Made of Dawn, made him the first indigenous author to win a Pulitzer Prize. It led to a breakthrough for Native American literature into mainstream recognition. Tomorrow, Mamaday will be the featured speaker at Point Loma Nazarene University's Writer Symposium by the Sea. KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hyman recently spoke with N. Scott Mamaday about his writing. She started by asking about how his spiritual connection to the land impacted him and influenced his writing. I grew up on Indian reservations in the Southwest, and uh, that's become an important subject for me. So the influence has been very great. An oral tradition and storytelling plays a major role in the preservation of Native culture. How did the stories you learned growing up influence you as a writer? Gave me a, a, a knowledge of oral tradition and storytelling that is very important to me, and I've incorporated that in my writing. How did the oral storytelling tradition shape the way you write? The Native American does not have writing. He has storytelling and the oral tradition. And there are certain things that mark that tradition, such as repetition, description, things of that kind, which I incorporate in my writing. So that experience has been very valuable to me. I wonder how you connect with your Kiowa ancestry through writing. Well, as a matter of fact, I'm writing now about the prehistory of the Kiowa tribe. From I'm dealing with their migration from the far north. And of course, there are no written records of that. So I'm having to... Uh, use the oral tradition as best I can, and uh, use my imagination. What's that process like? Incorporating it into something that is concise. It's, it's a large story, and it's very difficult to boil it down into, into uh, something manageable. But and that, that's the primary challenge, I think. And I'm, I'm doing that, but it's, it does take work, and it uh, comes slowly. You were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for your 1968 novel, House Made of Dawn. 
What was it like to be the first Native American to win that award? I didn't think of that at the time. The, the, the prize came as a complete surprise to me. I wasn't expecting it. Didn't know I'd been nominated. And uh, so it, it, it was a very important thing in my life. It changed my life in certain, in certain ways. But it's, uh, you know, the, the question is, how did, it, how did I feel about it? Uh, how, how did it come to me? I got a call from my editor at Harper and Rowe, as it was called at the time. And she said, Scott, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, I wasn't really, but I, I said I was. And she said, you've won the Pulitzer Prize. And I said, yeah, for, tell me, yeah, I, I, come on. I, I'm busy, Fran, don't bother me. <laughs> it took a while for it to sink in. And when it did, it was wonderful. And your book, House Made of Dawn, it's been described as the beginning of the Native American literary renaissance. Uh, did you intend for your work to open the door for other writers? No. My intention was to write a book uh, and, and to write it uh, not for anyone in particular, but just for the sake of writing. So I think Ken Lincoln, who, who uh, had a book, published a book entitled Native American Renaissance, gave me credit for starting something there. And, and I think it's true that, that uh, there are two books that come to mind, House Made of Dawn and, uh, and D. Brown's uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which came out about the same time. Those two books were very influential in, in, uh, in calling attention to Native American writing. And why is it so important to call attention to Native American writing, you think? Well, there's a wonderful story to be told. You know, the American Indian experience is uh, really wonderful, wonderfully dramatic and full of good things. That is, things that are appropriate to the telling. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the Native American has always had to has work against a language barrier that is slowly being overcome. So there are more and more now Native, young Native American writers who are coming to into uh, the spotlight. And that's a good thing. It'll continue to grow and it'll be an important part of American literature, as it already is, I think, in some, in some ways, but it'll continue to grow. And your book, House Made of Dawn, um, really deals with the many difficulties of growing up on a reservation. And I'm curious about what led you to become a writer in the first place and what it was about your youth that made you want to capture those stories in writing. Well, the simple answer to that is my mother was a writer. And she influenced me greatly. She, she, there were always books in the house, and she was always telling me stories and and uh, reading things to me, and 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 when I came of age, uh, suggesting things for me to read. So she was a major influence. And otherwise, uh, it's just something I I wanted to do from the time I was eight years old, or something like that. That was author N. Scott Mamaday speaking with Jade Heineman. He will appear virtually at the 28th Annual Writer's Symposium by the Sea tomorrow at 7 p.m. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great Thursday.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.